From 87 Lafayette, it's Coronapod. I'm Matt. And I'm Adam. Oh, I'm, I'm loving this new theme music. It's, uh, it's great. Thank you again, John, for uh, Thank you, John throwing that Merlin. together. And shout out to John. It was his birthday yesterday, so it was Happy fitting. Happy birthday, John. It was fitting that we uh, dropped the new track for the first time. Mmm. So, Adam, what's going on today? There's a lot of controversy in the city. There is. Bill de Blasio, our mayor, can't stand him, love to hate him, hate to love him, sent some tweets aimed at a specific demographic community, and... Look, I don't think he's anti-Semitic. Like, I think that's a bridge too far. But I think it is telling that he decided to put on blast a community that is often put on blast for things that they're doing that they shouldn't, right? Like measles, vaccination, Mm -hmm. coronavirus. Like, they should not, the Jewish community in Brooklyn, the Hasidic community, should not have had a well-attended funeral yesterday. But for Bill de Blasio to get on Twitter and out specifically say the Jewish community makes no sense because it's not communicating. It's not a public service announcement. It's not a warning. It's just a, ooh, how can I look good? What can I do to show that I'm doing something Mm -hmm. against the community that never liked me and never will like me? So I have nothing to lose. What he should have done is I think it's fine to show up. I think that shows that you are in solidarity and are taking this seriously and it removes some of the accusations that the NYPD is biased or something, right? I think that's positive. But then you can say, like, we took action against a funeral in Brooklyn. You don't have to say who it was. And, like, on Sunday, you can go with the NYPD to a park and issue tickets to a bunch of yuppies, right? Mm -hmm. But to get on Twitter to, like, indict the entire Jewish community when, like, the specific people who are at the funeral are not on Twitter... It's insane. It's like, yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah, I just found it a little weird. You know, if there were a gigantic Episcopalian <laughs> funeral, do you think de Blasio would get on Twitter and be like, to the Episcopalian community, you're on notice for having big funerals? I don't think so. No, absolutely not. So, anyway, he continues to impress me with his failings, um, but but that's life. So what else is going on? You, you know... One thing we should talk about, (coughs) bless you, is a big decision that you're trying to make about a big purchase. Ah, yes. We're talking about the pasta maker, We're talking about the pasta maker. Yeah, so originally it was just going to be the KitchenAid pasta maker attachment, which has sheeters, so it'll turn pasta dough into thin pieces and cutters, so then you can turn it into, uh, I don't know, what... Um, fettuccine or any flat pasta. But then Catherine really wants an extruder that can make bucatini, rigatoni, penne, all the Mm. extruded pastas. And that... I do like... Can I put in a word for the extruder? Because I really like... I didn't even know that that's what they were called, but I do like pastas that have that space in them. You know why? Because if you're making a nice sauce... It captures the sauce. You get the sauce. You know, I make a lot of pasta with chickpeas. You get a little chickpea inside the rigatoni. Delicious. So, I think I agree with you. Extruded is better. The issue is that the extruded, you really want a bronze dye. What that means is you want a bronze disc at the end of the extruder that the pasta is forced through because the bronze 
gives the pasta an uneven texture. And that uneven texture is what makes it capture sauce really well. Mm. Most cheap store-bought pasta is made with a Teflon dye, and it's much smoother. When you buy that fancy Italian pasta, it's rougher, and that captures the sauce. So, Catherine wants bronze cut die cut, and that is just more expensive because not that many people make a hand-cranked bronze die cut extruder. <laughs> so I found one for, I think, $200, but I just don't think it'll get a lot of use because it'll take too long. How long does it take to hand crank? I mean, you, you're your going to be body. cranking for a while. Like 20 minutes would be my guess to get to make how much pasta? a pasta for like two people. Oh, wow. That's a lot of work. So I was thinking, oh, well, maybe we can get an electric one. Maybe we can build a motor. The problem is the fancy Italian ones are three grand mm. for a small one. And how much pasta does that make in an hour? I think that makes a lot of pasta. And it also does the mixing for you. So it's automated. You add semolina flour, you add water, and you just like pasta comes out. Mm. And all I'm really looking for is the extruder, right? Like, I'm okay to mix it myself. And how hard is this thing to clean? So it's interesting. With pasta machines, you never want to clean it with water and soap. You let it dry, and then you just brush it out. Mm. So I actually don't think they're that hard to clean. Because, you know, I'm doing some math in my head. I'm trying to think, how much is flour? And how much pasta do you need to eat? How long would it take for this to be cheaper than buying store-bought pasta? My thought is decades, probably, but I don't know. I eat a lot of pasta. I think if you make pasta <coughs> every single night, <coughs> you would probably save a dollar a night. So you need to do it for 2,000 nights. That's a lot. That's a lot. Do me a favor, though. You're a consultant. You're good at modeling. I, I feel like we should work up a little model for this and figure it out. If it's two years, how many meals it is? How many meals it is. I'd like to know because I make a lot of pasta and it would be nice to always have fresh pasta. But anyway, we talked enough about pasta and carbohydrates. Let's get to our guest. Absolutely. Let's, let's give them a call and uh, see what they have to say. Hello. Welcome to CoronaPod. Welcome How to the show. You? We are we are doing well. How about you? Excellent, thank you. Uh, Ex- just, uh, too many meetings that, uh, that are dealing with uh, what the future is going to look like. Well, uh, Matt and I have been looking into our crystal ball for the past, you know, Six weeks, and uh, we it's don't cloudy. know. It's it's pretty cloudy. But let me introduce you to our guests. You are Joseph Bauer. You are a professor at Harvard. Um, anything else you want to share with our listeners before we kind of dive into uh, our, our subject for this evening? No, except that I sort of straddled with Charles River. I, 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 those of you who know us, I, 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 at Harvard, I... I work at the business school, and uh, also I've been at, helped build the Kennedy School, and I work there. So I, it's two different perspectives. And, and for, for our listeners, the business school, obviously business, the Kennedy School has to do with government. Thank you very much. We are, if you live in Boston, there is the symphony, the museum, 
the university. I mean, this is really a very strange village. It is. I, I always joke that it's a perfect starter city in that it has everything you need for a city, but it, it eases you into them. You know, you don't have to worry about too many neighborhoods, too many train lines, that kind of thing. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Very good. Well, how are you guys? We, we are doing well. We just had a good dinner. Um, I have one more piece of work tonight. Do you have anything left, Matt? I got a little, uh, a little bit of work, but I've been looking forward to this interview all day. I have to say, I'm really excited. Good. Let's, let's go. <laughs> all right. Great. So I, to give our listeners some background, <laughs> um, you <laughs> wrote a book with some other folks called Capitalism at Risk. And essentially, you know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the premise of the book was that there are some striking problems with the world that capitalism has created and that these problems have solutions but that so far governments have kind of failed to put in place solutions to the problems that capitalism has created and your argument is that it is going to be incumbent on companies to take up the mantle of fixing some of these problems not just for societal's well-being but also for their continued existence. Okay, that's not uh, a bad summary. I, I, but <laughs> let me describe for your listeners just how this all happened. Uh, in uh, 1908, Harvard Business School got founded. And it got founded because the kind of people who were leading Harvard that time and very sort of what used to be called the great and good uh, were really concerned because at the turn of the century, uh, it was terrible. There were financial crises. Can you imagine that? And there was corruption and uh, big companies seemed out of control. And some people decided maybe if Harvard had a business school uh, that had as its goal goal making business a profession, uh, things could get better. Now, these were very practical people, so they're not utopians, but that was what they hoped. So we were headed up to our 100th anniversary at Harvard Business School. And it seemed to some of us that instead of having faculty give presentations on the optimal way to calculate return on investment or something like that, we might see what the great and great business leaders around the world, because we were no longer just American, what they thought. And uh, the World Bank uh, had produced an astonishing uh, book, which was a a sort of set of scenarios looking out at 2030. So that was almost 30, well, 25 years ahead. And uh, what we did was uh, create what we call the briefing book, just uh, maybe 25 uh, slides would, would be PowerPoint slides, but it was, and we put this pamphlet together and we 
assembled uh, groups of business leaders in Europe, in Asia, in Latin America, in the U.S. And we would have done more. This was not since systematic, but we we didn't have time, and it was hard. To, uh, even for it might be interesting for your listeners to imagine that for the Latin American group, we had to meet in the United States because there was no city where these uh, leaders wanted to all get together um, in Latin America. It was both easier and safer to be here. Anyway, uh, so we showed, they, we met and they discussed this book and the, what, what the world was like and they identified uh, 10 things, uh, sort of 10 questions that they thought were really important and uh, so what they were, which is, it's interesting, this is 19, basically all these conversations were before the financial crisis. So the first thing they said, the financial system is unstable, it's out of control, it's very vulnerable, it's a risk, big, big, big risk. Second, they said the trading system is a, is a mess because it looks as if we're going to see a lot more protectionism. It's not, it's very important to what we've been able to achieve, but it's, it's vulnerable. Third, they said inequ economic inequality is going to lead to populism, and that's going to really threaten things. Fourth, migration is really a problem. A lot of them outside the United States were talking about uh, societies, particularly the Europeans, that thought of themselves as homogeneous and were really no longer anything like that. The environment they thought was the most important threat, but uh, it wasn't immediate. Uh, they thought rule of law was breaking down. Public health and general education were not doing their job. Uh, state capitalism was a problem. So that's basically China that they were looking at. They didn't, Russia was always a problem, but they didn't think that as state capitalism. China had a different model and it was succeeding. Radical movements, terrorism and war, and pandemics. <laughs> they had that too. Mm. And then they said, uh, and our government institutions, uh, particularly in the democracies, but also all the international institutions we built aren't doing their job. So they did this all in, before the financial crisis, 2008. So, uh, I mean, that was pretty interesting, but then the crisis came and that everybody focused on that and instead of what we had come to call the disruptors of the system. So, uh, what, I'm gonna, a year ago, the publisher said, why don't you look and see how things are doing? So we did. And basically everything's gotten worse. Nothing's been done. 
we've learned how those 10 things interact. And some of it is really powerful. So, uh, the first, the environment and migration have interacted in ways that ex exacerbate all these problems. So at one level you get what happens in Syria. There's drought and in the basically the Becca Valley and people come south and west and uh, because after years of bad harbors they, they, and Syria is what you might call a national socialist state but uh, Assad wasn't doing any of the socialist part to help these people nor when they were in the cities where they'd migrated, they weren't helping them. So they revolted, and instead of doing anything, he shot them, tortured them. And you have the problem of Syria. And of course, what the Syrians, that leads to the migration out of Syria into Europe, which is not exactly what the Europeans wanted, and you have lots of problems in Europe. But what's also interesting is there's migration away from bad agriculture all over the world and into the cities. So you mentioned that kind of the, the important, I guess, one thing that you've really learned, you know, you identified all these shifts, these disruptors, and now you're starting to see the combination of them. Have right. you, with coronavirus, for example, seen any kind of overlapping disruptors having a bigger impact than you might have anticipated on their own? Well, what, it only, what we see, that's a good question, but what we see is only that the nations are having a very hard problem uh, working together. Uh, it's very interesting that scientists, as I, as I understand it, the virus was identified in China sometime in October. Our scientists in the U.S. became aware of it probably in November, the ones who talk globally. And, but basically, I mean, you know, the, you've seen all the graphs and everything. There was no real response. Uh, it starts in Wuhan, maybe in December. But, uh, I mean, it's pretty clear that the virus was in northern Italy, in, certainly by November. And um, it gets to the United States in early January. I mean, there's no international response. The scientists are communicating. But just what we're saying, the governments of our various countries are just feeble. Just recently, the, in the, Europe, the head of the European Union, I forget her name, 
they they apologized for, to Italy for being really useless in helping them respond to the crisis. So no, I mean I I don't think we've learned anything. The problems have gotten worse, and we're not paying attention. So one of the things that we see because of migration, you get these big mega cities in uh, Nigeria, in Africa, I mean, 10, 15 million people. And uh, organizations like the Gates Foundation have really helped to suppress malaria and a lot of the other diseases that are problems in big, well, uh, throughout the world, but particularly in megacities. But because governance is so bad in those countries, uh, they're not exploiting their potential at all. And uh, you could, so they haven't built infrastructure, they don't have sewer systems, they don't have clean water, they, all those things. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we haven't seen the end I guess is what I'm saying so your book was titled Capitalism at Risk <clears throat> and a lot of the disruptors you're describing might be described as kinds of market failures and I'm curious when you look across this landscape what parts of capitalism in particular seem most at risk? Where, where do you say markets have failed and there needs to be a non-market response? Well, I would say the problem is that if you, in our book, we, it's, I, I've never felt good about it because I think it's tediously academic, but we spent time trying to describe what are the fundamental pillars. And if you want to run a good, cap, a mark, a good market system, hey, you, you need rules, you need a good banking system, you need honest courts, you need uh, a good education system, you need good public health, you need, I mean, it, it's, a long, it's a long but obvious list. The, what are the, the foundations of conservative economics, the Austrians, all said, this is, it's chapter two in Hayek. You've got to have all these things, and then you can let, have a market. But we have developed a new ideology, which is let it rip. And we call that the market, and that's just nonsense. And capitalism is going to just collapse if that's the way we we run it. You need rules. So I mean, think about running a, a football league, and if you, your team was really good, but you didn't have a kicker, and then you changed the rules that said there were no field goals. But that's what we're. That's kind of what we're doing. So, right now, you you're thinking about a second book, and I guess my question would be, is the is the medicine that you're ordering up the same, or do we need something different 10 well, years later? We, what, it's a very good question, 
book is premised on the idea that the governments aren't going to get any better. That and somebody can figure out how to get our politics so that we elect the right mayors, the right governors, the right presidents. It's all it's global. It's not we we do have an idiot for a president, but uh, other countries have elected. I mean. Nobody I know who knows Turkey well understands how Erdogan happened to happen. I mean, he's a disaster. So what is interesting is that while we're waiting to build decent governments, uh, some of the best-run and most well-endowed organizations in the world are some of the great companies. And we spent in the new edition, well, in the first edition, we exact, we discussed this and look at company response. And in the second edition, we're more interested in companies that just have figured out how they can use their competence and do a lot to help on a particular problem. And uh, not as charity, but and, and it makes a difference. So that that is, I guess, our argument. That I can tell I can tell you a story that in 1978, a group of us went into China. We were invited to sort of, you know, China was opening, was interested in business and capitalism and all that. So we taught courses, and um, it was going well. And on the uh, train, we were way up at the Manchurian border. We were taken up there as a reward for our good services. And we were coming back on the train, and we had we were these we we had a compartments, and we had four sort of minders that. And they grabbed me and pulled me in and locked the door. And they said, uh, Bauer, what are we going to do about China? And I said, you can't do anything about China. But it's too big. But each of you has something you can fix. Fix it. And I guess that's the spirit of the book. That, uh, and Deng Xiaoping really opened China that way. He said, black cat, white cat, who cares as long as they catch the mouse? So as long, I mean, the companies are really, some companies are doing amazing things. And uh, all we, that's our audience. Our audience isn't governments and so on. Our audience is managers. Right? And there's lots they can do, not as charity, but using their skills and capabilities to do intelligent things. So I guess one final question. When you see the private business response to coronavirus, the push to create tests, antibody tests, ventilators, do you see that as kind of the enlightened self-interest or do you see it as charity? Oh, it's not charity. But it's what's really interesting right now is that uh, so 
some of the big firms that have the capability are building the capacity to produce whatever it is they're trying to do, whatever vaccine or anything. But they're very clear, and they say it, it's that it is not obvious to us that what this capacity is going to be used for is what we're developing. So what we're seeing is actually a, a new model. It's not totally new because we did it in the past around defense when we were fighting the Soviets. So if, if we needed capacity to do something, uh, products or whatever, when we moved over to another company and they'd make it. Uh, but and I think that's going to happen around both vaccines and drugs. That in order to get the volume we need in, we're following, you know, a dozen, two dozen different approaches. Uh, when something works, uh, we need a lot of capacity that companies will cooperate. And that's pretty interesting. I mean, I think it's sort of switching. I do think that we're not going to find a new normal, that the world you and your friends are going to be inhabiting. You've got the opportunity to really change. Things are going to change. It's just not going to be the same. And it, it's, it, it's going to be huge. Well, as we said earlier, We've been looking into our crystal ball and haven't been able to see the future, but um, we know it's going to change, and I think uh, what you're saying is the change might be bigger than expected. So thank you very much for uh, joining us, and I uh, hope to see you soon in person. That would be great. <laughs> thank you for coming on the show. Well, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye. You didn't even tell our audience how we got a Harvard professor. I should say, Professor Joseph Bauer is my grandfather. So last night we had my mom. Tonight we had her dad. You know, we're... Uh, we're we've got in a lot of the relatives, I was saying before we got on. We've got in two moms, two grandparents. So, you know, it's pretty good. And uh, I think... Grandpa was definitely the uh, most pessimistic so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, hard to argue with a Harvard professor, so... I think, <clears throat> thinking about back to 2011 when the book came out and how he talked about it, he definitely focused more on the positive stories that were mm. coming out of it. So the companies that realized they needed an educated workforce, so invested in local schools. Mm. And it seems now that there's a, a bit of just like, I told you so and nobody listened, so this is what's happening, ha ha ha. But I still think there's that spark of, it's not capitalist, uh, capitalism has failed. It's, it's at risk. And the people who are going to fix it maybe aren't the people who you would expect to, but that it that it might get fixed. Yeah, I got to order this book on, uh, well, not Amazon, wherever it's available. Capitalism at Risk.
This has been Corona Pod. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay healthy. Corona Pod is brought to you by Momo the Cat. Follow her at Momo underscore is underscore a underscore cat.